you know, it's easy to condemn money when you don't have money. But once you get it, you're like, well, I mean, this is pretty good. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be one of those evil bastards who doesn't give money to other people like the woman who recorded Great Gig in the Sky or something like that. But, like, <laughs> I will be a benevolent rich person. Yeah. That was side one. This is new side to me. Way better me. <laughs> this is a new beginning here. Uh. Hello, 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 and welcome to a very special anniversary episode of 1001 Album Complaints. Welcome to our 50th episode. Can you guys believe we've done 50? 50? Wow. Almost a year. Logged 50 conversations about music. It's kind of hard to believe. (laughs) If only we had just put a recorder in uh, the Deer Park Tavern back in the day. Uh, We could have gone through the whole list at this point. (laughs) So this, if you're unfamiliar, if you're just joining us for the first time, 1001 Album Complaints, welcome. This is the show where lifelong friends, lifelong musicians get together to discuss and analyze and complain about an album from Robert Dimery's 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. This week, this special 50th episode celebration week, we've decided to not pick randomly from that list and instead dive into really the definition of a must-hear album, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Take that, Dimery. <laughs> well, Dimery, Are we even sure right. this is on the list? No. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's on there, but... It is indeed. It's on there. Screw him for this. <laughs> so as you might imagine, if you've listened to us blather on at all, we all are quite familiar with this record. We don't need to... Well, we will. We are about to dissect it, I should say. We certainly don't need to. <laughs> As we've done all throughout our friendships and lives, we will continue that right here on this podcast, hopefully bringing something new to the table. But we're not really debating whether or not this belongs on the list. It absolutely belongs on the list. So that's kind of the premise we're coming from. We're going to provide a little background from the record. We're going to play snippets of tracks from the record to kind of illustrate what we're talking about, tell you a little bit about why it's so great if you happen to have tuned into this and have not heard Dark Side of the Moon and want that kind of musician's level take, well, that's exactly what you're about to get. So hope you're ready to get deep with us. I thought by way of introducing ourselves, we can throw it around the room and everyone can just introduce themselves and say a little bit about why Dark Side is a must-hear album. Let's start there. So let's kick that over to Adam. Hey, this is Adam. This album didn't enter my proxy until probably 16 17 my old man had had one pink floyd album which was called uma gumma i think Mm -hmm. which was one of their mid-60s very psychedelic it was mostly instrumental it just didn't do it for me so it left me with a bad taste in my mouth and probably phil or tom you probably brought this cd over to my house and we listened to it and my mind was blown uh, from the stereo mixes to the noises. It is just a remarkable experience. So I, I, I probably experienced this, you know, 25 years ago with you guys. Excellent. Excellent. Let's kick it over to Phil. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say something similar to Adam. I sort of discovered this uh, record 
Um, yeah, probably around the time 15, 16 years old. And like, let's just call a spade a spade. Around the same time I discovered marijuana. And these things really just, uh, they really work well together. It's really like, you know, <laughs> chocolate and salt. So, uh, yeah, it really just lights up your senses. Uh, and it was also my first experience with like an end-to-end record. I had not really had an experience with 23, 24 minutes of contiguous music that was amazing and felt like one sort of epic song with movements. And then you turn it over and they just did it again. And yeah, really just just a really, really, really changed the way I thought about maybe producing music or writing a song. That beat even my most aggressive estimates of when the first mention of marijuana would happen in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Alan, take it from there, please. I also, so I, the first time this album came onto my radar, hilariously enough, was around, I want to say it was like late 80s, 1988, maybe when I was watching MTV, because I was allowed to watch MTV when I was eight, because I had very little parental supervision, but... (laughs) I remember Kurt Loder or somebody like that coming on MTV and announcing Dark Side of the Moon has for the first time in, you know, 15 years left the Billboard charts and it's been on there, you know, that whole time. And I noticed that my parents had a a tape uh, of this album kind of laying around the house. So I listened to it at the time. Obviously, as an eight year old, I did not get it, had no understanding and um, similar to Phil picked up this album back when I introduced uh, myself to various substances that enhance the experience. And uh, yeah, it's just a great album. Not much more I can really say that that hasn't been said already. Tom, tell us about your personal experience, why this is a must hear. Well, you know, I, I think that one of the reasons why this is a must hear, and we've all sort of said it individually, is that it is an experience to listen to this album. I don't think of listening to Led Zeppelin 4 as an experience. I think that <laughs> this album is comprised of a bunch of fantastic individual songs and when put together they create something greater than the sum of their parts and it is a it's just a masterpiece and yeah, I'm going to have to echo everything that everyone said before. I spent so much time with Phil in high school getting high at his dad's house with the lights out and he had these glowing stars in the totally. ceiling. Just like <laughs> listen to Dark Side of the Moon and like be like, I swear those stars are moving, man. Like I swear they're moving. <laughs> it was it's the kind of thing that I almost feel bad about how much I listened to this album in front of my kids because I had totally square parents who never listened to cool music at all. So I experienced it for the first time as a teenager when I could appreciate it. And by the time they get to that point, they might be like, this is just old hat. Like, I don't, oh, I don't like wow. this anymore. Um, point. And so, yeah, I like I live right across the street from a high school. And I swear to God, I just want to stand out on the street as kids are leaving school in the afternoon and being like, hey, kids, do you like weed? Let me introduce <laughs> you to this album here. Because like, I'm not going to introduce you to weed. But like, if you already like weed, trust me, I know the music you listen to, you think it's great to listen to while, while high. Let me blow your mind for a minute. And say a friend, they're like, yeah, I can buy weed at 7-Eleven, man. That's not cool anymore. We're talking about <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, of course, this is Rob. I would echo all those sentiments. This, in my opinion, this is why, or a large part of the reason why a book like 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die gets written in the first place. It's for the reason of albums like this, which are an experience, which are a complete, artistic, encapsulated document. And... 
you know, just to follow up directly on what Tom said, Led Zeppelin 4, yeah, I agree, not really an experience. List, at least I recall a time, maybe when I was 12 or 13, listening to the song Stairway to Heaven is a little encapsulated experience. And you have songs like that, that that have those moments in your life. But this is an example where they maintain that thematically, musically, uninterrupted musically even, for the entire, whatever, 44 minutes of the record. The themes are extremely universal, which I'm sure we're going to dig deeper into. Life, death, greed, war, insanity. It's basically the most thoroughly developed concept album, in my opinion, really ever. And it does that, and I think the definition of that concept album is that it, it maintains both its life as a rock and roll record, meaning it works without the concept, but it also has a story that's kind of subtle enough to not interfere with your first several listens, meaning it's not, even some of the later Pink Floyd stuff, while great, is a little more musical theater-ish, where mm-hmm. the story is much more overt. In this case, there is a, a through line, there is a theme, and yet, and you kind of, I think you're able to sense that pretty early in your listening experience, but maybe on a more subconscious level. So that makes it layered. It's layered both in the, of course it's layered in the production, which we're going to talk a lot about, oh, but it's man. layered in concept. So, excellent record. Let me give you a little background. Uh, reference something that Alan said. This is one of the most successful records of all time. It w- was on the Billboard charts for over 750 weeks, which is insane. <laughs> It was like 14 and a half years or something like that. It's insane. Exactly. Yeah, it was released in 1973, March 1st of 1973. The total sales of this record are, you know, there's some mixed reporting, let's say, depending on how you claim sales and things like that and what, how people do that. But it claims something in the realm of 44 million in sales. And that most certainly puts it in the top 10 records of all time. So we're up in thriller territory. But, right. But notably still below Whitney Houston's The Bodyguard soundtrack. <laughs> you know, not to get off topic. Really but I puts actually perspective. Heard, I actually heard uh, I Will Always Love You from that soundtrack the other mm-hmm. day. Really bold choice by whoever mixed that to just give you 25 seconds of unfettered Whitney Houston, nothing else, to kick that song off. Very gutsy. Oh, that's right. I agree. Yeah, the intro is all just just her. Yeah. And Dolly Parton still raking in the cash on that oh, yeah. one. <laughs> but you're right. It is, it's a great song. I'm not really taken away from that, that particular concept. Of- but I agree. It's different. <laughs> <laughs> when we did the Alanis Morissette album, I was surprised at how high that was in the album rankings. And as I was going through to compare... I also saw the bodyguard in there sandwiched between like Michael Jackson and also meatloaf is up there weirdly. Yeah. Enough. So bad, like out bad out of hell. Yeah. It's a few uh, odd choices there. So yeah, when you look at lists like that, the general feeling of, of fellows like us who care a lot about music and have thought a lot about it is that some of those make, some of those make no sense or you're, you're genuinely a little bit confused and other ones really belong there. And dark side is one of the ones that really, it really makes sense. I'm, I'm glad this record has sold so many copies. I think it absolutely deserves its praise. And I suppose if you're clicking on this podcast, you're already, like I said, aware of it. Maybe you're already over it. I don't know. But it, it, it belongs there for sure. So just a quick history of Pink Floyd. And then I want to quickly kind of revisit what is going on on this record. And then we're going to talk about the individual songs. Okay. But the background of Pink Floyd is itself kind of interesting. 
which is they formed almost 10 years before this. They formed back in 1964 and were a very different kind of band back then. They were formed, the band leader at the time was a guy called Sid Barrett and David Gilmore, the guitar player that Pink Floyd is famous for and all the guitar souls was not in the band and they played a kind of a different style of music. They were they were a little more bluesy, a little more, a little more run-of-the-mill, let's say, even though they were uh, experimental to an extent. But around this time of Dark Side, Dark Side itself represents a real crystallization of what post-Sid Barrett Pink Floyd was like. So Sid Barrett leaves, goes a little crazy, partially drugs, partially some mental health issues, I think. And the band recruits one of his good friends, David Gilmore, to kind of fill in for him initially in live performances, and then he becomes an official member of the band. And at the same time, with his new influence and without this guy Sid Barrett as a songwriting influence, they start to move in this more soundscape, space rock territory. And they tried to, they had a couple records like that, including Metal, which I think we all think is, is pretty great. They did a couple soundtracks. They were kind of considered more soundtrack cinematic music, and even that'll get referenced here again, I'm sure, on Dark Side. But this, they, they all say when you hear them talk about Dark Side that they knew that this was the moment. Like after they listened to the final mix, they were like, oh yeah, we clearly accomplished, we finally accomplished like the thing we've been envisioning for for a while what was it the roger the roger waters quote he was like if we were brave we would have just said okay that's it we're done we've reached our peak and moved <laughs> yeah, on yeah. uh he's, he's like you know i'm i'm, I'm glad we didn't because some good stuff came out of it but you know he's like in reality we all sort of realized that like this probably was going to be the high water mark of the band and if we had just accepted that and moved on we might have been happier in life i mean right. even <laughs> even the art is like what like holy yeah. shit everything about it is perfect right and and i think ties right back to what you're saying like the whole concept is right there right so it's that all- guy storm thurgerson uh he's got that interview where he talks about how he had i think like 10 different sleeves printed up for the concept art for the for the album and he like put them all around a room and he said everybody just walked in and was like that's the one immediately and he's like right. no 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 look at the other ones like no i'm not looking at the other ones that's the one i don't <laughs> need to fuck up that's the one <laughs> yeah he said the, the band members independently came to that right and that's how he knew yeah. it was good well i also heard re that this very famous cover is that he had done their previous album covers and he did their album covers after this too but he was much more known as a photographer or someone who staged photographs or and edited them together, so more of a, a photographic approach. And he also tells an anecdote in, in one of the making of documentaries that Richard Wright, the keyboard player, kind of came to him and said, hey, we don't, want to, we don't want your shitty photos this time. Like, can you do a graphic design? He's like, I'm not a graphic designer, but okay, I guess I'll try. <laughs> See what I can do. So this is what... Well, he re- really knocked this one out of the park. You know, talking about how they knew immediately that this was a masterpiece. I think there's a lot of albums that over time develop like a cult status or, you know, it takes a while for people to realize, Hey, this is actually really good. But this album, I think it was within like weeks in the U S hit number one. So, you know, there wasn't some, there wasn't any like real interpretation of, Hey, is this good or not? It was just, this is just universally agreeable. And this was their first chart foray in the U.S. So they had they had a couple minor they had a couple hits in the U.K., but they hadn't really broken through to the U.S. market, which at that time was still considered, I suppose it is still considered, 
the the big market, the big breakthrough. The creme for de la Banks. creme. Yeah. yeah. So one of the reasons I, I want to talk a little bit about why the whole record is good. Go ahead, that is interesting, though, that if you were in the U.S., like this was your introduction to Pink Floyd, unless you were like on the scene, right? Right, and I'll say just right off the bat for anyone who's wanting to get into that Pink Floyd catalog, this is a good introduction to Pink Floyd. This is what people are talking about, and it is kind of undeniably the best version of them. Well, you're not saying Division Bell is the, <laughs> the entry point we should recommend? How dare you? <laughs> Division Bell is the one with the two faces on the cover, right? The two big, the Easter um, Island, like Easter Island looking faces on yeah. the cover. That was post Waters, right? Yeah, way post. So I always wondered, were they taking the piss? Because Roger Waters has that Easter Island shaped head going on. He's got that weird long face. <laughs> okay. I kind of always wondered, are they taking the piss a little bit of that? <laughs> it's it's funny you mention that because let's absolutely comment on their appearances. Roger Waters. <laughs> As a young man, if you watch like Oof. live at Pompeii Oof. or these this old footage of Darkside, he's a goofy looking dude. I agree. <laughs> and yet, credit where credit's due. Look at him now in his seventies. I think he's aged the best. Yeah, you I know what? Very fair for him. I think it was the discovery of the beard. He was like, it just evens <laughs> his whole face up. out, and like it really, it really does. You look at him without a beard, and you're like, oh, I don't know about that. You look at him with a beard, and you're like, oh, I get that's cool. I can, I can pretend that most of that chin is just beard hair, and not your actual chin, <laughs> not actual Jay Leno meat and bone. Well, I'm proof that a beard can a beard can hide uh, many. Uh, Gilmore, uh, many on the flaw. other hand, didn't wear a shirt between 1971 Dude, and 1974. Friggin' rock star, right? Yeah, like, man. He got the black Stratocaster and the long hair oh, just to pop yeah. on some jeans and call it a day. You know, yeah, super, man. super cool looking. <laughs> so we should say so. Okay, we have the band's personnel. We have Roger Waters, the bass player. And at from this moment, this was the first record where he took over as the sole lyricist and became the power center, or started strongly to become the power center in the band. And this is ultimately what led to their breakup some years later, was a disagreement between him and the rest of the band. He His voice is, I'm sure, on the record. I can't quite recall exactly where it is. But at the moment, on, on Dark Side, he's not really what I would consider the main vocalist. But he did write all the lyrics. He's the bass player. We have David Gilmore, the guitar player. He is, at least from Darkside's perspective, kind of the voice of the band or one of the main voices of the band. We have Nick Mason, the drummer. Awesome. This I'm tempted to call every person in the band the secret weapon in the band because they're all amazing. Right, they're all secret weapons. And then you have Rick or Richard Wright, the keyboard player, who's really the secret weapon in the band, in my opinion. <laughs> no, they all are. <laughs> One, one, one more detail that I just thought was interesting, and people maybe probably know this or, or they don't, but this band was originally named after two obscure blues musicians, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. Really? And yeah, like, it really, it really stood the test of time, even though these, these are folks that I think Sid Barrett must have just read them on the back of some liner notes. Like, I don't even know if he had the records, because they weren't prolific blues artists, even. Well, I think I it's that no whole, like, what's in the name. I those guys are. Right. Oh, me either. Clearly, but yeah, I think if if somebody you know if I'd never heard the the name Pink Floyd before, and you know some dude down the street was like, "Hey, we just started a band. It's called Pink Floyd." I'd be like, "Would you just like slap a few random words together?" But now you're like, "Oh, Pink Floyd. That's a pretty like badass well, band name." The other thing is that if you told me that you're in a band called Pink Floyd, 
and then you're like, imagine what we sound like. It would not be this. It would not be. <laughs> I would not be like, oh, you're probably like soundscapey and like just a lot of like dreamy harmonies and stuff. Right. Yeah. I'd be like, what well, you like? A, you're like pop, right? <laughs> yeah. For sure. Okay. Last thought, and I think this is going to segue. Phil, you mentioned you might have some some stories to tell us here, but mm, yes, yes, one of the, yes, one yes. Of the key... that'll be a perfect segue into the record. It'll well, set the yes, scene. okay, because here, well, here I'm going to cue you up because one of the key aspects I think of why this record is great, just to put it in the context of all the other records, all the other stuff we've talked about, is that the band was playing this live as an entire piece for at least a year before they walked <laughs> into the studio, so they were tight as hell. Yeah, and I think it should. Oh, I didn't realize that. I knew, you know, my impression always was that this was a studio powerhouse, which it is. But that always led me to believe that, you know, they were conceiving a lot of this in the studio, sort of like, you know, let it be style. Well, Phil, before you jump into that, I want to I want to make one comment about the live show versus the album, because I found that this was a really interesting thing from a um, remastering documentary that they made where they basically said that. This was originally supposed to be quadraphonic when right. it was originally released, but they didn't. Yeah. They they just mixed it in stereo. They didn't mix it in quadraphonic, but they played it live quadraphonically. How crazy is that? So they were like, so basically, you- for the first like thirty years of this album until two thousand and three, you couldn't experience it correctly unless you saw it live. <laughs> Which is nuts because they were showing that uh, Rick Wright would have his key, like synthesizers and he'd be able to turn a knob and send it to the back right of the stadium and then make it move to the back left of the auditorium. Yeah. Like oh, he's wild. controlling the four things live on stage, not the sound guy. I was like, that's friggin' that is badass. Wild. Well, and then I, I've only been to one show. I went to a Flaming Lips show and they didn't have quadraphonic sound, but they did have a speaker at the back of the audience. And they sort of had like a megaphone they could talk into and they would blast sound effects. And it was incredibly disorienting. So I can't imagine what it would be like to have it swirling all around the Especially whole thing. Especially in an arena, right. All right, so this is a perfect segue to this story. So I was talking to an older gentleman friend of mine. This gentleman is probably in his 60s. I will not share his name. And... I was somewhat surprised. I forget exactly how we got onto the topic, but I said something about Pink Floyd. And to my surprise, he was like, oh man, I saw Pink Floyd several times. Saw him a bunch of times back in the 70s. And he's like, man, let me tell you a story. So he proceeds to tell me this story about how him and his buddy go to see Pink Floyd at the Spectrum. And it's awesome. And his buddy's like, you know, they're playing Carnegie Hall in two nights. Let's go to Carnegie Hall. So him and his same friend and both of their girlfriends decide they're all going to go see Pink Floyd at Carnegie Hall. So hop in the car in Newark, Delaware, and they head on up to New York City. Around Philadelphia, they all drop acid, right? So that's going to take a while. As you do. In. Yeah, right. as you do. Yeah. So that's going to take a solid 45 minutes to an hour to kick in, maybe longer. Based on what this gentleman is telling me, this is not his first lap around the block so he's fine he's feeling good right sure so he then says that like he nails this this is perfect he's like i feel so good besides the fact that i'm gonna piss my pants right (laughs) i like we're at the door of carnegie hall to see pink floyd at eight o'clock i am tripping my face off i am this is it i'm ready gets up to get his ticket ripped and the dude's like nah dude 
you've got tickets for the late show. There are two shows on this night. There's an 8 o'clock and there's a 12 o'clock. So no. he is now tripping his face off in New York City and he's got four just hours sitting on the burn. sidewalk. He's with his friend, his friend's girlfriend, and his own girlfriend, and they're just trying to figure this out. He's going to piss his pants. So he's like, I just go into the first bar I can find. Also, 70s New York was not the same as New York. Yeah, it's very different than modern day New York. Great point, Alan. Yes. So he's like, I just go into this bar to to, because I have to use the bathroom. I go in and as soon as I go in there, it's weird. Mind you, he's tripping his face off. So after he comes out of the bathroom, he's like, it's a topless bar. And he said this like really freaks him out. There's like a bouncer. He guesses he slipped past because he was in such a rush to get to the bathroom. And he's sort of like, hey, who are you? You didn't pay, right? So he gets out of there. He's outside. He's freaking out, but he's okay. And uh, he says, all of his friends agree. We've got to get off the streets. So they say, we're going to go to a movie. They go in, they watch because it's cold too. It's cold. They've got time. We've got to get off the streets. Can I guess the movie? Do Guess they watch the, the Warriors? No, no. The movie, <laughs> Darn, okay. the movie is <laughs> right. the Poseidon New York, Adventure. we're going to get... Ca- oh, shit. <laughs> so he says they get into the movie theater. The movie's already started, right? So they go way down in front, right? Because they're looking for four seats together. There are these kids sitting in front of them. Teenagers are real loud. And they're like smoking in the theater. Gets all bugged out about the ship sinking. Poseidon Adventure. Still tripping his face off. <laughs> Inevitably leaves... Goes to the Pink Floyd Late Show. It's great. He goes home. Catastrophe averted, right? So I hear this story and I'm like, man, that is awesome. Let me look this up, right? Like, I want to see this set, essentially. And this totally exists, right? On on April 29th, 1972, Pink Floyd played the Spectrum. And they kick the night off with Dark Side of the Moon straight through from speak to me straight through to eclipse then they close out the show with one of these days careful with that axe eugene not a song i'm familiar with and that's a great song (laughs) wow they end okay and then they end with 20 not clear if the where there's an encore or whatnot right and then you jump to carnegie hall may 1st two days later there's two shows may 1st and then there is the May 2nd show. That's going to be your midnight show. Midnight one, right? right? So let's read off this, this set list, right? Same thing. They just run down Dark Side of the Moon. And then uh, actually the second set at Carnegie Hall is identical to the Spectrum show, except they encore with Saucer Full of Secrets. Epic show, right? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Here's the wrinkle. Poseidon Adventure didn't come out till December of 1972. <laughs> this guy dropped so many details about Poseidon Adventure. Oh my God. It's cold, right? I'm going to piss my pants. I'm bugged out about the boat sinking. We had to go down to the front row. My man went to the Poseidon Adventure, right? So if you jump forward <laughs> Maybe to March to 1973, <laughs> the scene repeats. March 15th, 1973, the, the Pink Floyd plays the Spectrum. They open with echoes obscured by clouds. Careful with that axe. Set the controls for Heart of the Sun. Then they blast you with Dark Side of the Moon. And then two nights later, they play Radio City Music Hall. Very similar set. So the question becomes... 
which shows did this guy go to? He's talking about how it's cold March 17th. It's it's St. Patrick's Day. It was 40 degrees in New York City that day. It's cold. 40 degrees, New York City at night. That's cool. Phil, you need like a whiteboard. At, you, I think that's like detective the, uh, the Always shit Sunny out of this. with Charlie where yes. he's like. Dude, the, what, what shows did he go to? Wait, you're telling me that some old acid burnout story was not entirely reliable, Phil? What is going on but, but here? No, but Tom, what's interesting is he, he potentially went to all of these shows, but it's melded into one dark side super memory. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Phil, that story is going into a dedicated bonus episode. Just yeah, yeah that's, that's really, yeah. I wish that was my story, uh, I think. Just usurp it. I'm sure that dude will he won't know. It'll all be part of the lore. Give it we know you weren't born yet, but we'll we'll still take you. Yeah, when I was yeah. negative nine years old, I was dropping acid and going to see Pink Floyd. Right. I'll tell you what, Phil. Give it give it thirty more years and about thirty more tabs of acid, and I think you'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> it will be yours. Uh, I'll let you know. I'll let you know when I get there. All right. Okay, I think that's a great segue to actually start listening to the music that we all know and love, and I think we're going to take this more or less track by track. So let's go ahead and cue up a little bit of Speak To Me, the first track, kind of short, into Breathe. So this was when when I turned this on. Right again, I've probably listened to it on a car stereo, maybe some shitty headphones. I recently I recently got a 14 inch subwoofer, a KRK. It's a studio subwoofer. It's really nice because you know I don't record music or anything. I just need one, dude. Those kicks in the beginning, oh, the like heartbeat? I had it. Oh my god. It is so dope when you've got the sub cranked <laughs> and you've got my my stereo monitors just ear piercingly oh it was just it was a religious experience did you lay flat on your back on the floor i did not you should try unfortunately i was sitting in a swivel chair i should have done that all right (laughs) so since you since you brought that back 
one more time, Phil. I remember laying on the floor of your bedroom as well, looking at those stars <laughs> as Tom mentioned and listening to this. And what I can recall is we would get high enough where we forgot that we pressed play, or at least I did. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. So that, yes. it takes about a minute to get Is in. this my heartbeat? Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. And then you're just like genuinely scared and confused when that screaming starts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, the greatest kick in in all of music. Yes. The, that that transition into breathe with the screams. Oh, the way that they tease so many sound would, effects that yes. happen on the album. Yeah, this is almost Master. this is yes, this is almost like a suite, you know, like like when you've got a musical mm-hmm. and and the first at, as they're introducing the credits, they play a little titty, you know, a little bit of each song and they crammed that into 30 seconds. And if you're not aware of that, it's it's a completely mind-bending experience like what the hell am i about to dive into totally well i think an interesting detail here about speak to me before we dive right into breathe is that this is this is nick mason's credit on the record right and this was contentious later it's like basically he's getting his writing credits on this and this is something that waters came to regret later i don't think do you know how does anybody know how this went down the, the the rift in the band because it was all about money, right? Uh, maybe. But you're control. what you're what you're saying. Just to be clear, is I think that the way royalties were traditionally divided up, or at least in a lot of contracts, would be based on total number of songs assigned to a songwriter on a record, and then that means that Nick Mason would get one ninth of the songwriter royalty oh, or something from the record, exactly. even though the song, quote unquote, is only a one minute. Exactly. He would get one ninth of the record sales from the right. band. Whereas... For writing that bass drum hit over the heartbeat. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's his, because everything that's his else is a conglomeration of cuts from the it's rest like, of the album. I got $10 million dollars yeah. per bass hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Will, totally worth it. I, I don't know exactly, but I think it's safe to say that in the history of the band, this is the one that made them all super rich. Right. We just talked about how many records it sold. And, you know, fun fact for the kids, it also helped fund the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail because they were. Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. When they were trying to make that movie, they didn't have money. They couldn't get backing. And Pink Floyd loved the TV show that they had, Flying Circus. <laughs> Shut up. And they up. were friends. They were kind of in the same London scene. So they asked them. I think Led Zeppelin contributed, too, to oh fund the movie. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. They, they also did it to like hide money for tax purposes too. Like ah, they were sort yes. of like, ah, oh, we can sort of like write this off as a loss, and uh, then we'll have to pay less taxes and fund our friend's project. And then yeah. they found themselves in a sort of Brewster's Million situation. Yeah. Then the Holy Grail's like, yeah. They didn't just buy Obviously. a football team. Wasn't that what you're supposed to do with with money? <laughs> I think they talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> but what I was going to say was then then every album they made after this, let's say three super significant albums with the original four that is Animals, Wish You Were Here, and The Wall, are kind of all about the perils of being rich and how much it kind of sucks. So I'd say the fame is part of what drove them I'm okay with testing that hypothesis if there's anyone who wants to run an experiment, by the way. (laughs) I think that they they were complaining about what we've talked about before is that sort of like you get sucked into this machine where it's not just you making millions. If you're making millions, somebody else is making tens of millions off of you. And so they're sort of like, yes, you know, they touch on it on the wall a whole lot. Like, you know, 
basically like i'm so fucked up i can't get on stage and like well how about if we just give you like a little bit more heroin would that help like <laughs> can i can i just get you on i just need you to do this one show just this one show then we'll talk about it later type of thing and you know you don't become a human you become like a machine part of the machine well this is another pink floyd related memory tom but i remember you and i on our very first road trip went to the rock and roll hall of fame when we were like 17 and I just, that was the first time I came across this quote because they had a big part of the set from the original wall tour. It was a big wall or whatever with the puppets. And there's a Roger Waters quote that was something to the effect of how disgusted he was by a fan, like in the front row of the arena, clamoring to get up there and, and, and touch him or, or get a drip of his sweat. And so much so that he spit in their face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait, are you what saying lovely, that you drove to Cleveland? A lovely fella. For your first road trip ever, is that what I'm hearing? That is correct, Alan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I was that, sixteen. That checks out. Yeah, I was sixteen, and Rob, you had like just turned eighteen, and so you were able to to get a hotel room, and uh, yeah, me, you, and James drove there. And uh, I always tell I tell this story about like how I'm going to have to be a much different parent than my parents were. Alan, you were talking about the lack of parental supervision, but like we drove to Cleveland, and I was gone for like three days maybe four days and when i got back into town i just called my parents and was like i'll be back in like three or four more days and then i just <laughs> hung out with rob and phil i think we ate mushrooms and like you know like just were like complete like you know uh total like hoodlums and no good nicks and uh but apparently it was just one phone call and then i came back like you know four days later it was like oh we good it was great yeah awesome. we're good all right <laughs> me cleveland's a good venue for that Okay, we've talked about drugs a lot, so I feel like I want to I want to cover that topic because I do not I want to be clear I do not think that one needs to be high to appreciate Pink Floyd. I really truly don't. I think that's a kind of a common fallacy, let's say. But I do think that this music is begging to have a level of intense focus paid to it. It's begging to be listened to on headphones in a dark room where you have nothing else to focus on except this music. And marijuana, for instance, really promotes that level of focus. So that, to me, is why they are paired together. But by all means, don't feel the need to get high. Just shut out other distractions and just focus on this. Yeah, get lost in it. That's what what you need. need And to to that point, it's a very, you sort of highlighted, it's actually a very different listening experience in headphones than through a very nice stereo system. It's also just a very different listening experience in the dark than it is (laughs) within the light. Well, even to extend that a little bit, it's a different experience if you happen to listen to it on vinyl, which I didn't do until much later. It's not a wholly different experience, but there are some, you know, there are some modifications when you flip the record that, uh-huh. you know, give it a different feel. So, yeah, I think there's at the very least setting aside a time to listen to this straight through and not just in segments is, yeah, I, I think very important. Yeah, you want to you want to avoid that scene from I was it I love you, bro. I love you, man, where he he's trying to introduce uh, Paul Rudd trying to introduce his girlfriend to Rush. And he's like super excited and he plays it on these crappy little like. Oh, that's where iPod Slap the Bass came speakers. from and I fucking hate that Yeah, scene. and it's completely <laughs> underwhelming and it's terrible. It's like if you have a chance to avoid that as your introduction to this album, please do. Make sure you set aside some time and do it right. Well, and one thing I will say is that I think that most people nowadays, if you are listening to Dark Side of the Moon streaming, I think you are getting that remastered quadraphonic mix 
that they did in like 2003 and not mm-hmm. the original stereo mix that is on vinyl. This is one of those like I I own a bunch of um like early Pink Floyd albums like original pressings of them but i found most of them at like you know estate sales and stuff like that this is the one that i actually went out and i paid a stupid amount of money for like a a first run of dark side of the moon because it's number one it's awesome like the the entire packaging and the cover it's just fantastic but it is different like you listen to it on uh you listen to it on vinyl and it does hit differently even if you're in headphones it just hits a little differently Mm -hmm. makes sense fair enough well, let's talk, let's talk a little thematically, and then this will maybe be the through line through the rest of the songs. Because I've always perceived, I didn't exactly read this anywhere, but I feel like we've talked about it before. I've always perceived that this is about a single human life. And that the scream in Speak to Me is about birth. And then you follow the progression approximately of kind of the mindset of a single human being throughout their life from from sort of adolescent uncertainty or angst and concern and anxiousness to greed and capitalism and the working life through to some perspective that comes in your later life and eventually acceptance of things like madness or death. So I watched an interview with Roger Waters and also Gilmore was talking talked a bit as well on this where he basically said that Roger Waters said that the genesis for the lyrics for this album came from his anxiety he apparently had a terrible fear of flying and he was like really scared of dying on uh, on an airplane and so he started like examining like the things that are like pressures on life from a bunch of different angles and one of those pressures is anxiety and apparently um on the run was originally called the traveling section before they called it on the run they just called it the traveling section and then there's death and but also madness and dark side of the moon is apparently roger waters handle for insanity that is where you go when you're insane you go to the dark side of the moon and that is sort of like always looming in the background as like he had a lot of anxiety that he was going to become crazy because he saw Sid Barrett become crazy. And he always thought they were like kindred spirits and he was going to become crazy at some point later in life, too. It just hadn't happened to him yet. That sort of is always looming out there as like the dark side of the moon is like going to come get me at some point. But Rob, I think you're right that the way that they constructed it does feel chronological and linear. Yeah. Well, I'll just like add to that. That's really interesting. I'll just add to that slightly in the sense that what I feel is that throughout the record, they come to more peace with things. Oh, I think we're going to talk about this at the end. (laughs) Exactly. So, so to me, but to me, that is one of the reasons why it has staying power that they baked this kind of young adult disenfranchisement element into it, which was powerful to me then but that it still has something for me now, a person who has perspective. Because totally. even within the context yep. of the album, they come around and have perspective. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are we ready to move on to time? I think we, we haven't really even talked about Breathe. Breathe, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I have plenty to say about Breathe. Lay let's, it on us, Phil. Yeah, let's do it. Well, I want to talk about the production here, because I think... You know, with On the Run, right, or no, not On the Run, Speak to Me, right? Like, this is really just like a sort of revolution number nine sort of soundscape, right? But I feel like Breathe is where you really sort of hear Alan Parsons. And this isn't a name that I think we've said yet, but I think this is where you really hear Alan Parsons 
impact, like for the first time. And this will be throughout the record, but Alan Parsons produces the record um, sort of, I mean, this style is, is really his, his sort of like brainchild. And in addition to that, you sort of can hear this interesting through line, which is Abbey Road Studio. Right, especially I think in the drum sounds. Like this was recorded at Abbey Road after Alan Parsons was like junior engineer on Abbey Road, followed by something else insane and huge that was tracked at Abbey Road. I forget what. I mean, he was setting up gear in that Get Back episode or that Get Back documentary. He was one of the the guys lugging equipment around upstairs. Yeah, yeah. And that may have been the other record that he worked on. So the things that I just think are so and then the thing I think is so hip about the way this record sounds and is mixed is the way he sort of like plays tricks on you with what you're even hearing. So like at the beginning of breathe after, after it sort of drops, right? You get this thing where you, a hard pan left, you have this guitar that's like dripping in Univibe, but it's, it's clean. It's also sort of like not a familiar sound. It's like, you think, of Hendrix, right? But it doesn't sound like mm-hmm. that. And to the other side, you have this hard panned, like, Wurlitzer, right? So on both sides, you sort of have this, like, dripping in tremolo, reverb, phasey sounds. And again, it's like, this this blends in your mind differently. It sounds different in headphones than it does through a speaker, because these sound different when they, like, it mixes in the air in front of you. It's weird. <laughs> uh, and then it gets even crazier because they bring in this slide that is hard panned to the keyboard side. The keyboards yeah. actually sort of step out of the arrangement for a second when the slide comes in. And as the slide drifts to the center of the mix, the keyboards come back in. Right. And it's just like, it's insane. Like you are seconds into this song. Right. And you're lost in this, like, this, like, your this wash. Right. And it's, it's beautiful. And, there was really nothing like it in 1973, 1972 yeah. when they started recording this. Um, yeah, I'm glad you... I, I think that's going to be a theme for me too because this idea that the instruments really blend together, the voices blend together, and I'm wondering at any given moment what exactly I'm listening to or what the stack totally. is. So I'm glad you gave it that level of detailed breakdown because I definitely think that was a strategy for them, whether it's guitars, synthesizers, organs, voices, whatever. Totally. I had a quick note on this. Am, am I the only one who, for their entire life, thought that the line was "run, grab a gun"? <laughs> I did no, not. Think it's that. run, definitely not at all. Rabbit, definitely not. run. Oh, okay, well there you go. So wait, grab a gun, years. dig that hole. Do you, th- you yeah, think exactly. that they're like you know like <laughs> this is a murder Cast, story? Yeah. <laughs> that slide feasible. guitar is quite possibly one of my favorite like tonal elements that comes in on a song and gives it. It expands the song so much. It really mm-hmm. kind of does feel like breathing. That it's so nice. I I don't know what they did to make that sound like a guitar plus. It just sounds more like more than a guitar. <laughs> it's definitely not slide guitar. It's a lap steel, um, but it's not like a pedal steel, right? It's just like a bunch of strings on a board, basically. Uh, and, and, but from an effect standpoint, I mean, I don't know what's on there, like, you know, echo or reverb, but yes, it sounds amazing. I played in a cover band once. Well, the band wasn't a cover band, but we did some covers. This was way back in the day. And when I first went to the audition, they were like, hey, we want to do Breathe. And I was, of course, like super skeptical, like, 
you know, that's we're not going to pull that off. The funny part was they pulled it off. Um, like these guys must have spent 10 years working on this. However, <laughs> they couldn't play anything else. Like they had a few songs from this track that they just nailed down. But when it was like, hey, let's play fucking, I don't know, Freebird or whatever. Na- name your <laughs> shitty cover song. Call me maybe. They- <laughs> the song you wrote. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The song you When I brought my songs to the table, they couldn't do it. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. So complicated. So one one other thing I want to add to this is this actually, and we'll see this again throughout the record, this sneaks through key changes left and right. Oh, yeah. It's sneaky, right? So the, the, the body of the song is an E minor, E minor 9 to an A, A major, A dominant 7, right? So, like, there's no two ways about it. You are in the key of D. You've got the A7, you're in D, done, right? But then it goes through these changes. I wrote them down here. That are cool. Okay, so it lays like you're in D, but you're on you're on the two five, right? <laughs> but then the choruses C major seven to B minor. So now you have to be in G. There's nothing else. F major seven to G. Now you have to be in C. Nothing else. And then D seven sharp nine, D seven flat nine, which by the way wasn't a detail I noticed until I sat down to figure these changes out after listening to the record for 25 years, right? I was like, yeah, yeah. fucking flat nine, sharp nine, that shit. Right. Wow. Great. And like, this isn't, this isn't like child's play, but it comes off effortless, like effortless. It sounds like a two chord song at yes. times. It really does. That's, what, I, that's yeah. what we're talking about with layered. But you're mm-hmm. right. As I, as I studied the chords of another song we'll talk about, I, f- I found a lot of the same thing. A lot of these really cool jazzy extensions that you, you, it could go unnoticed unless you really dig it. You know, I didn't dig into this, and I, I you know, I could for like a follow up. But I wonder, I wonder what, to which degree these chords actually just overlap. Like, what notes in a C major seven just go right into a B major seven, right? And are there are there things hanging out in the background that are just holding two notes and will go over two changes? So, I wonder. Okay, well, I think that's a great segue into the next <laughs> song on the record, Time. Let's play a little snippet of that, the kick-in. Well, it's not the next song on the record. The next song on the record, On the Run, which we're going to skip over because it's just a, a, a loop. Because right? it's freaking yeah. badass. It is, for, it is. It is. Don't get me wrong. But I don't know if there's much analysis we're going to go to. Yeah, the, sure. only, the only notable thing about that is that, you know, the synthesizer that it was made on doesn't look like what you think of as a synthesizer. It doesn't have a keyboard. It's literally just knobs and a joystick. It looks like <laughs> it literally looks like right. a video. Game, 64. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it looks uh, like what I would imagine when they were like doing like nuclear tests back in the 50s. They had like stuff like like yeah. stereoscopes yeah. that they were like, oh, yeah, look at that. Yeah. Totally, totally. It actually has a fun little quote-unquote routing matrix that's a weird, like, pin system. None of it makes much sense to me, but it does sound badass, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll jump into time, but just a quick note on the on-the-run thing. So Alan Parsons in an interview said that we take things for granted being in the digital age, but when they were mixing on the run, they had every member of the band 
Alan Parsons is the engineer. They all had their fingers on faders. So you can think if, if uh, uh, our listeners out there, if you picture a recording studio and you've seen those giant boards with all those little knobs and, and sliders on it, picture every member of the band with their finger on four faders and then slowly moving them up because the eventual final take was going to be based on the volumes that they were setting. So he said it was like uh, it was a, it was a uh, a dance to get through putting that track onto tape, which I just thought was really that cool. sounds fun. It does, yeah. doesn't it? It's it's not it's less. And imagine making something good out of that because I'm laughing yeah. because Tom and I for some reason opted into that approach on a record yes. we did one time. It's not fun. And, uh, didn't yeah, it wasn't fun. No. I, yeah, he called it. He called it a performance. That's what uh, Alan Parsons said. We didn't have weeks to do it, though. We had like you know forty minutes to do it in this guy's garage. Yeah, and much crappier songs, and yeah. you know, on yeah. down the line, right? Yeah. yeah. So obviously, time opens up with this cacophony of of clocks and bells and ringing. Alan Parsons came to the table. He had recently done a sound effects album for an, for a, a movie that, that never got produced, never got used. And he suggested, hey, I've got all these crazy ass sounds. Why don't we use it? So they wound up taking the, uh, the raw master tracks from his original. And in order to get things lined up, again, talking about the performance that was in the studio, it's another one where they had all of these different tape machines with these individual clock sounds. They had stopwatches, and they were all pointing at each other to start at specific spots to line up (laughs) all of these chimes going. So it was a remarkable feat of analog engineering that's just super cool. So they just said that it was just a room full of tape machines running to get that sound of chimes and bells in the beginning of that song notably also are the rototoms that are are mixed mm, in yeah, stereo on like, this. Yeah, good call. so this is the the high-pitched tuned drums that help build this tension and masters of tension this song it builds up to the point where you're you're going insane waiting for it to come in there's a lot of these guys are masters of giving the audience credit, right? Rob, you had talked about I one of the prior podcasts about bands that are really impatient. It's like, well, get to the chorus, yeah. get to the hit, right? Yep. These guys, they take their time and it totally pays off.
totally agree with you, and it's one of my things that I always, the biggest compliment I can levy on a band, or even a band I'm in, and it comes out very infrequently, is what a patient band. Pink Floyd is the classic patient band, and so why it's difficult, well, I don't know the psychology of why it's difficult, but just suffice to say, when you're in a band, when you're writing a song, it's really tempting to want to move things forward, to feel this pressure to get to the chorus, etc., I would just say the the experience of the performer is so much different than the experience of the listener that you like as a listener you don't have pressure, right? As a listener you have anticipation. As a performer you don't necessarily have anticipation, you have pressure and you're like, "Oh man, like we got to get to there." The other thing is that the payoff actually needs to be good, and so you need to be going right. to something that deserves yeah. that build up for it. We well, also need some level of buy-in from the audience. You know, if 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 you're going to you know, have a, I don't know what this is, two and a half minute intro or, or whatever. You need, you need to have credibility. You, you need to, you know, people to be willing and inclined to kind of sit through that. So, I mean, I know people that'll drop acid and drive two hours to come check you out <laughs> for a long time. Uh, well, <laughs> so. One thing I will say yeah, also is I, I think that it is a product of the era in that you were listening to a side of an album. If you're listening at home and that's your listening experience, you're not picking the needle up and going to another part of the album. Whereas nowadays, I'm sure there's so many people that if this comes up, they just hit skip. They're like, I'm right. 15 seconds in and you haven't hooked me yet. Skip. Whereas you didn't really have that option. Good that point. is true. And there still weren't a lot of bands doing it that way. Though. No, you're right. You, are you right. know, Can't Buy Me Love it packs a lot into under three minutes, for instance. Right. Sure. right? It's, sure. It, it, pop songwriting doesn't leave a lot of space or have a lot of patience. And, and especially when you just, just to double down, when you combine the on the run lead in, where after a track like that, you're going, well, clearly they're building to something. Right. And then you have a two and a half minute intro or whatever it is. And right. to me, this, we didn't expressly say we were going to pick out our favorite moments on the record, but certainly the kick into time oh, is one of yeah. my favorite mm-hmm. moments on the record. Also an achievable drum fill to do for basically anybody on this call. It's not hard. And it's so good. <laughs> and you know what, Adam? That could have been pulled right out of Octopus's garden, right? Like, <laughs> it is the Abbey Road Neve <laughs> drum sound. Totally. Like, like yeah, you know what yep. I mean? It's just the tone. It's like, it's it's Alan Parsons knowing that room and that gear. And, I know, wonder if yeah. the, uh, the T-shirt that they put over top of the snare drum made it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> I don't remember seeing that when I was there, but <laughs> it's an important piece of, this, of the yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, like a bandana. <laughs> you know, back to the sort of like patience and performance, to what degree do you think it maybe stems from really having confidence in the material, right? Like, speaking for myself, I know sometimes when I'm performing live, I feel a pressure to do something cool, right? Which, in a different way, means I don't have faith in the material to be cool in and of itself. And or I feel this pull to do something cool instead of just letting the work I did before be cool, right? Mm -hmm. So, may is this, again, like a philosophy thing? Like, they believe in themselves. They believe in the work. It's got to be a factor deep well the funny thing is though apparently roger waters was riddled with insecurities and you know like he had to get cajoled into singing at all on this album because he said he didn't like his voice and Hmm. so it's you know as the guy who rob and i i remember we went and saw the australian pink floyd doing the wall and kind of blown away 
like just watching that performance of like, wow, like these vocals wail. He really hit some crazy notes. He really goes for it. And to think that Roger Waters, the guy who can sing that, had no confidence in his voice. It's insanity to me. Roger Waters, in another interesting dichotomy, I kind of understand where Roger Waters was coming from because he does not have the prettiest voice in the band. He probably has the third prettiest voice, not counting the female backup singers. But his range is astounding. And I've always found it funny that Tom and I were watching a cover band and going, wow, Roger Waters sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) So just some quick more, uh, a few more notes here. So do you know what the TikTok noise is in the intro? No. It's dead bass strings. He's just just muting it with a pick. I was going to say before before anybody brings it up, I will I will address the fact that yes, Roger Waters plays with the pick. Yes, it is and amazing bass playing, and right. yes, it is hot. I've never said it can't be hot. I said it's harder to be hot. But either way, I love Roger Waters' bass playing style. We I just assumed fantastic. you've come around. It's not flashy. No, listen, I'm I'm sticking to my original position. I don't think it's better. I think <laughs> it's think worse. I don't think Tom's gonna take an L on this one, dude. <laughs> oh, it's definitely not better. Let's let's uh, level set here. I, yeah. I yeah. well, better is relative, but I sure yes. I also checked with a a, a British coworker of mine about the line that uh, "hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way." He said he likes the line. He said it does communicate a certain uh, national identity of pseudo curmudgeonness uh, <laughs> that uh, that he digs it. He digs this line. I mean, I feel like you could say that about the Irish. You could say that about yeah, the Germans. You could say that about a lot right. of people. It's just you know, part of adulthood <laughs> is just shut up and get over it. Right? <laughs> Can we point out that Quiet the dedication to this podcast, where you are asking co-workers if they co-workers i was like hey they the lines from a song that is amazing i'm very impressed dedication so this song also has a reprise to a prior song right this song at the end goes back into breathe for just a couple bars which is it's awesome <laughs> it, yeah it's it's almost like a musical or an opera that doesn't suck um sorry do you think that's supposed to represent having your own children where does that fit into the chronology what's the next the time is gone the song is over thought i'd have something more to say and they go back into breathe where he says he's home again he likes to be there when he can whoa phil that's deep yeah Actually, I think the Breathe reprise, Home Again, which kicks off with the Home Again line, is the first of really great lyrics on the record. I mean, I generally like the lyrics of Pink Floyd quite a bit. Credit to Roger Waters. And maybe this is the moment when they they move a little bit away from like a little teenage or early 20s angsty (laughs) into... Mm -hmm. Into old man vibes, which is something I've always, you know, even when I was young, I uh, felt that way about myself. So, but I, I love the lyrics and breathe repress. By the way, I'm laughing because I literally used a line from Time as my senior yearbook quote: "The run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking and racing around to come up behind you again." Which, as like a 17 year old, I was like, "Man, Time's just really catching up to me." <laughs> <laughs> old man Time is running me down. <laughs> Before we jump out of this, 
tune, I'm sure we're moving on shortly. Uh, can this? Can we start the debate of best guitar solo on I the think, record? I was going to say, I rips. think this one is, yeah. it might be one of Gilmore's best of all time, or at least my yeah. one of my favorites, if not. Yeah, it's, it's up there. When it breaks into the... I guess the chorus chords and he does that with the female backups coming in. Oh, we have not touched on how amazing those female backups are they sound like a freaking organ it doesn't yeah. sound like yeah. voices it sounds yeah, like an instrument it's amazing it's crazy so they pumped the well first off the the so there was a documentary alan parsons was soloing some of these channels and he had just the female vocals and the way the vocals are stacked it covers about a vocal and a half of like a major seventh chord so there's a really low one in there it's just a very full lush sound and then they add something on top called a frequency translator, which gave it that. It's kind of like a phaser effect on top of that. I actually, after hearing them without effects on it, I preferred the unaffected version. And that is my one critique on this entire album is that I didn't think they needed to add that electronic sound over top but of the women voice. I will say they timed it so well with the, the timing of their the song, own vibrato the swells the ooh, like yeah, it swells okay. and that. drops on chord <laughs> changes like we've played with uh guys before that do synthesizer stuff and you can have like the sort of sequencing and the uh you know the phasing on it and if it's not in time with the song it just it's something's just a little bit off and sure. so they absolutely nailed it it's perfectly in time <laughs> all right yeah i'll give you that yeah, the whole album really has the swell. It's like you're on the ocean. It's like the ocean. It ebbs yeah. and flows, mm -hmm. and that's a big part of how they did the mix. Or I don't know how much of that was in the arrangements versus the mix, but yeah, it's, again, can't can't love this song enough. However, I do think I love the next song more. Oh yeah, I would say that I just got. I got. I want to notate a piece of gear here. The I don't know if time is the introduction of this, but Gilmore uses an echo effect called the Benson Echo Rec 2. <laughs> Sorry, that's as just far a great... as I know, no human on planet Earth <laughs> like owns he, there's one. one. Right. Yeah, well, there's two of them. I don't know who has number one. He has number two. But like Benson. This, you can find pictures Bob of him Benson. playing this thing. Yeah, you can find pictures of him playing this thing on the road. Like this is his sound. And I don't know where this thing came from. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've seen pedals that emulate it, but like I, never in my life have I gone into a music shop and been like, whoa, a Benson Echo Rack. Like, never. Boss is making a new <laughs> Benson pedal. Probably not. I think we're going to move it on down the line to the next tune that Tom just alluded to. Great gig in the sky. Yeah, great gig in the sky. So this this song actually on the record, and I never realized this because I first time I heard it was on a tape, and then obviously later on a CD many times. But this was a closing track of side one, which I think was kind of appropriate because the song is essentially about you know death, dying, the afterlife. It was actually I think it was originally titled the mortality sequence as as sort of a working <laughs> title. 
I think it was the religious sequence. Well, I'm I'm going off what Alan Parsons said. He's like, I don't know the I don't know the titles of a lot of these tracks because we just called that one the traveling sequence. We called this one the religious sequence. Like, yeah, it was the mortality sequence. It was then they called it the religious song because okay, apparently those those uh, chords which Rick Wright sort of came up with those chords, they weren't sure what to do with it. Everyone liked it, but they you know weren't sure where it sort of fit into the into the the puzzle. But one of those incarnations was calling it the religious song where it was played on organ. And instead of some of those passages in the beginning, which was apparently like the doorman of Abbey Road Studios, just talking briefly about death, they would have people reading like Bible verses. And then I think at one point they had they they tried out, you know, NASA transmissions like over top of some of these chords. <laughs> and, then you know, obviously, finally, they got it to work. I think the. Clearly the main like thrust of this song is the vocals. And originally they were going for a, uh, like a gospel singer, which was what they, what they wanted. And I don't know if it was Parsons or, or somebody else that actually recommended this woman named Claire Tory who comes in. Yeah, it was, it was Parsons. Yeah. And so in walks this, and I'll say that she's, you know, looked like basically a housewife because that's how David Gilmore described it. And just wails, right? But she comes in and, and is doing, she said, you know, what's, what are the words? Like, what do you actually want me to sing? And they're like, well, just kind of riff for a while, just improv and we'll see what we get. So she starts doing this like ooze and babies and, you know, to try to feel it. And they all go, no, 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 no. We don't even want that. Like, we just want <laughs> no words, no words <laughs> nothing. So apparently in her head, she thinks I should try to just, make my voice an instrument and see what happens. And so this wasn't like a one take wonder, but I think it was within a handful of takes that they actually had this. And apparently they were just in like wrapped, you know, awe of, of her track that it, that it made it pretty quickly. I think it was pretty fitting that this was the the closeout of side one of the album because well, I think- Alan, I want to make one point about that. I read that they were in the these the in the engineering booth. They loved it, but when she came in, they were like, "All right, yeah, we'll see." And she left oh, the studio no thinking that they were going to cut the vocals from the track. And she did not realize that she was on the track until she w- she got paid 30 pounds for her performance. She then left 
and she didn't know she was on the album until she saw the record in a store, looked at her name on the liner notes, and bought a copy, which means they didn't even give her a free copy of the <laughs> oh, fucking that album. I did not know. That's like Donald Fagan. She wow. did not like- get she did not get a composer <laughs> credit until two thousand and three. So she had to sue them to get a composition credit. Yes. Which is, wow. She got, That's crazy. For 30 years, she was she, for 30 years, she basically got 30 pounds as her recompense for that performance. Which is for pretty one, fucked for up. One of the she most, won that yeah. one. That's, That's super fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. This there's nothing else in my mind that sounds like this in recorded history. No, nothing. I remember the first time I heard this. This was like the moment when shit kicked in and was just like, what am I listening to? This just this is just power right here. Also, fun fact about this song. Anyone who has done, we haven't talked about this yet, The, which I know has probably become a joke at this point, but the whole Wizard of Oz dark side thing. <laughs> yeah, when right. you sync this album to Wizard of Oz, this is the song that starts right when the tornado scene comes on and it ends right when that scene is over. So it's I'm sure it's a total coincidence, but this was one of those songs where when you do that whole exercise that we all have done in high school, it feels like it's perfectly aligned to that scene. Well, that's a, that's a great segue into the next track and we don't have jumped there now, but when the cash register opens on money, like goes ding, that's when she swings the door open and you see the color. I think that's the most, and it's like, it breaks. You. Yeah. That's You're the like, most, Why? that's How the most compelling totally. of the dark side. I don't believe in the dark side. Oh, yeah, the dark side connection. of the moon is fake. Echoes and 2001, that's totally real. Exactly. <laughs> Turn on Echoes and the last DVD chapter of 2001 a Space Odyssey called Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. Yeah. Line, line the first ping up with when the title screen pops up, and it, that is real. That is totally real. I'm sure you can just get it on YouTube now, but that to me that is a much more that compelling yeah, approach. I just want to say one last thing about this tune. I think I sent you guys this some time ago after I saw... I saw Roger Waters live, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, and he had two women. I think they're in a group together. They might be sisters called Lucius. Oh, they just did something with War on Drugs on their last album. Yeah, they're... They, yeah, because they're, they're their own group. They were touring with Roger Waters, and when they did this song, they harmonized the entire thing, and there is a there is a recording. Like, they released a recording of it from the tour. It is so dope. <laughs> I, um... It sounds, it sounds awesome. I also just just the piano sound on here apparently they had richard wright in an entirely separate room to get that full grand piano sound the which, orchestra uh, the orchestra yeah. style recording that parsons yeah. talked about yeah. right which is it's amazing and did anybody else and i maybe i had noticed before and i kind of forgot it right at the very end of the song there's a very little like yeah yes i had that speed up the Go ahead. It's almost like they speed up the tape or no, something. No, they did. Just for like a ha- So okay. because this was the last song on on the first half of the vinyl, or at least this is what I read. And I had always noticed that too, you know, way back in the day, but didn't understand that there was some logic behind it. It was because they were like running out of real estate on the record. And so they had to speed it up. And on the CD, actually, money comes in while that fade out is happening. But on the record... It doesn't. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because meaning, so there is a physical limitation, just for anyone listening, there's a physical limitation to how much can go on an album side. You're saying they were running out of that. Correct. Yeah. So there was there's probably like a there's like three to five seconds where they actually speed up the end of Great Gig so that they can fit it on side one. Ha. 
That's wild. Which leads into the track Money, which it's hard to even talk about the song. I feel like this is maybe I'm wrong. I don't know if time was a hit back in the day, but but this was like the the first hit from the album. This might have been their first like quote unquote hit in America. It was their it was their first single, I think, for the last like five years. Like they hadn't been in the habit of releasing singles. They were kind of of the opinion they didn't even know how to write singles without Sid Barrett. So this was the first time they're like, oh yeah, this could be its own standalone thing. Totally, totally. I think one of the obviously a big kind of keystone for this song is the opening, you know, sound collage of the cash register and the. It's amazing how now you can do all this shit in like instantaneously where you can make this collage of, of sound, but four minutes, four minutes it would take you in garage band right now. Exactly. Yeah. Meanwhile, I can't set my own right. levels in garage band, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that opening sequence of the cash register, the coins was, I don't know if any of you read about this or, you know, I know this was some of this was in a documentary. There were, there was so much tape that they had to splice like manually, and this was all Roger Waters' idea, that they had they had to wrap the tape around a microphone and they had to have people holding it. So there a was microphone enough, stand. Microphone rather. stand, yes, thank um, you. Right. And some of the the click the, the clanking from the coins was Roger Waters throwing coins into like a mixing bowl. And they had to sort of replicate that into that like seven four time signature. But just the amount of, I think the inventiveness, you know, we've talked about their, how innovative they were in the studio. To me, the f- first segment of this song is like a perfect example of how inventive they were with just using, being resourceful in the studio. I mean, they talked about having to cut physical pieces of tape that were the exact same length and then tape them all together so that yeah. it would fit in time. Like, that's a madman's It's like project. a razor blade. <laughs> yeah. That's, and that, yeah, that's something that might pass slightly unnoticed to a layperson is how in time all those freaking sound effects really are and how consistent they are even before the beat starts. Totally, totally. One of the interesting things, too, so there's a few things about this song that stand out. Obviously, it being a huge hit. It being in in seven four, as a side note, this was one of the first bass lines I ever learned, and I was kind of amazed. This this actually empowered me to pr- continue on bass because it felt I, I don't want to say easy, but it's not it's not complicated to play, but it grooves it's so logical. hard, yeah. and it's <laughs> yeah it's just, right. It's so satisfying to play. Like I still play it now from time to time, but it has a it has like a a soul kind of groove to it that is unlike the rest of the album. And I later learned that, uh, you know, David Gilmore mentioned this being inspired by that song Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs. So if you go back and listen to that song, I can definitely see that connection of just being sort of a slow, like that whole Stax 
records kind of vibe. Great song. Well, can we can we talk about how much saxophone there is on this album? Kind of a lot of saxophone. And I I don't yeah. think they'd ever had saxophone on their albums before, but it's a pretty prominent instrument. No, totally. I think the guy's called Rick Perry, I want to say. And he's on this record, and then they bring him back for... And he's the governor of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> the funny part about, about the, the sax part was, so when the solo starts, the sax is still playing in 7-4, but when Gilmore takes his solo, which it's sort of a three-part solo of like a you know high and low and high, he talks about how they were like, well, why'd you adjust your solo right, for yeah. Ford. He's like, well, it's just easier to write a guitar solo, but we made the fucking sax player play in seven. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the, that's one of the tastiest, hippest decisions, I think, on this whole record. Right? Let's, to let's, drop into 4-4. To four, 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 drop yeah. into 4-4, four, because four, it rocks so much harder, especially when you've been denied it with all this 7-4, yeah. <laughs> which you, you were feeling was groovy at that point, for sure. But then to flip back to 4-4... Four, four, But also, just I feel like <laughs> classic Pink Floyd of that. They're still really big into those like runs, you know, like yeah, big transition runs. I feel like that's that's a hallmark of their sound, especially metal and beyond. And it's really, it's killer. It's so good. Speaking of a hallmark of their sound, this sound use this this song uses a particularly fast tremolo on the guitar there's that clean guitar that's like right you know what i'm talking about it's real fast and really dry another piece of gear i've literally never heard the capex processor tremolo what is that like i've heard of a benson echo rack like in like gilmore lore but i've literally never heard of a capex processor the hell is that well not only that speaking of gear he apparently in gilmore solo he plays the first two parts on his you know strat that he that he always played with for the last part where he's hitting some insanely high notes he switched to some kind of custom guitar that it may have had a few extra frets or it had some kind of capability to just go even higher so huh. I, I feel like the old shoebox like with the hole cut out like and the rubber band 28 fret <laughs> fretboard or something like that like two octaves and a little bit more probably yeah That's possibly crazy but like a double guitar <laughs> <laughs> well he also doubles part of the guitar solo on another yes. guitar that's yeah. in there too yeah. i just feel like the dedication to say hey it within this one guitar solo i'm going to switch guitars for the recording of this is <laughs> next level dedication yeah so that's all i got on the song other than the, the obvious irony of the fact that this song made them a shit ton of money, yet it was kind of a right. condemnation of money and all the trappings therein. You know, it's easy to condemn money when you don't have money. 
But once you get it, you're like, well, I mean, this is pretty good. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be one of those evil bastards who doesn't give money to other people like the woman who recorded Great Gig in the Sky or something like that. But like, <laughs> I will be a benevolent rich person. Yeah. That was side one. This is new side to me. So Way better me. <laughs> this is a new beginning here. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's move on to the next track, Us and Them. So I... I opt to take on this one. This was written by the keyboard player again, Rick Wright. This one was one that was originally written for a movie, but ultimately rejected. And they originally titled it, in line with some of those other titles, they titled it The, uh, the Violent Sequence. So they revisited it years later. It, it was originally for this movie called Zabriskie Point, which is sort of like a cult movie, but apparently very very terrible. I didn't, I didn't watch it. It was always intended to kind of be about war and violence, but when they revisited it with Waters writing the lyrics, you know, this, this is sort of what, what they got. And one of the things I did was I learned it on piano this week, or at least the, the skeleton of it. And I think it, it deepened my appreciation for the song. I've always liked it. I'd like, I like how chilled out it is. I like how much space they leave, which I'll talk about momentarily. But let's talk about the chords for a second. So the main kind of verse section, it's all based on a D. There's a D in the bass, there's actually a D and an A in the bass consistently over every single chord I'm about to say. So you have this bass line of what feels kind of like a D major or just at least a D chord. But from there, you start on the right hand with the D major chord, then it goes to a D6 chord, then it goes to a D minor chord with a major seventh in it, meaning that mm -hmm. you got an F natural and a C sharp. That's the money chord. Really fucking cool. That's a money <laughs> chord right there. And then it's a D sus four, so it's all based Dude, on this D. Dude, that's crazy. That, move, that it's root awesome to play. In, in the I left, had this, it just yeah. is staying there. It's totally dope. And then the, you hear how the melody is actually following that that voice leading, following from kind of the A, the fifth in the original D chord, to the sixth, the B, up to the major seven, the six, uh, the the C sharp mm -hmm. in that weird D minor chord with major seven in it, which is and very that, rare. That D minor chord you're saying that that has an F note in it. Yes. So it's uh, the way I was playing it. That sounds really cool. Is like D A D in the left hand, uh -huh. and then F C sharp F in the right oh, hand. Yeah. He apparently Rick Wright said he heard that chord on Kind of Blue and was like, Oh yeah, I got to file that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> nice. Cool. Something That's cool. I I didn't do a super deep dive on this, but something is sort of like gets back to other themes of the record are the song has the sus chords, D sus, E sus with the D in the bass, and then that major seven. I didn't pick up on the F note. I'm just going to assume this continues the theme. These sus chords, they don't give you the third. And when you start hitting them in sequence, you never get anywhere, right? Like there's this sense mm. of not, it's not even non-resolve, Right. It's just you're drifting. You're like you're you're sort of aimless. It's beautiful, but you're still yeah. like you're you, there's there's no there's it doesn't have the same kind of center. Right. And it's just so cool.
no, it's a good point. It feels like a little bit like endless repetition, right? Mm -hmm. Which is really, which is sort of a hallmark of their sound very generally. One of the reasons I like this is because for me, it, it represents the middle age section of the life that being described on the record, meaning that it's a sort of a reflection on society and war where you're starting to chill out even from, you know, if, if money is about your 30s, perhaps, where you're focused on making money and building a career and you're in that capitalistic kind of hamster wheel, then this is a transition over to your 40s where you're like, what is, what is war even about? This is ridiculous. Conflict is silly. Somebody you went to high school with becomes a grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it has great, quiet, loud structure, which is a classic structure for songs. Quiet in the, meaning quiet in the verse, loud in the chorus. But the way they accomplish it, the loud part, with really just voices, almost, to give you that sense of increased intensity. And we've called out the backup singers as being excellent, I agree. But I want to say that the combination, the harmonic combination of Gilmore and Wright, which is actually what you hear a lot of times on this record, you hear it here, I think it's in Breathe, for sure. That's my favorite. They're definitely on Echoes, harmonizing each other kind of all throughout. The lyrics to those songs, they're kind of my favorite sound of Pink Floyd, and I think we should give them a lot of credit. The way their voices work together, I think, is, it is really, all, really all, For me, it's always had, like, an, this is not like a weird word, but it's always had, like, an orgasmic quality to it, where it just hits... It, it almost to me feels like like a peak of the album in some ways. And I think that vocal arrangement has a lot to do with it. I think part of it is the soaring sax line that comes in for the... You like when they hit the, the chorus, the, that sax line like comes up in a very climactic way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You got that line coming up and you got the piano bass oh, kind of dropping down from yeah. a D to a B minor. So you get those like counter counter lines. Yeah, the other thing, and this was in the documentary too, so you all might have seen it, but what makes it to me a real microcosm of what they're good at generally is the fact that they left space in the arrangement for the singers to only sing us <laughs> one time. And then there is, if you think about it, there is a long gap in the vocal take. Now, later, they went back and inserted echo. That means it repeats right. for an extended period of time. But the choice to leave that much space without necessarily knowing how you're going to produce it, and that's, this is what Alan Parsons led me to believe in the documentary was the case, that they kind of pushed back on filling that with any more vocals. And he's like, no, no, we'll figure something out for that, or that'll give it that room to breathe. That is super sparse. There. You're right. Yeah. They hit us, and then it's a... 12 count almost until the next word and you've only said us a single syllable two letter word <laughs> right for yeah wow go that's awesome yes that's all yeah that's everything i want to say about that well I, I know we would be tempted to skip over this one but i want to touch on before we move on to the the ending couplet of this album i want to touch on any color you like which 
I think most people probably don't realize is the third Breathe reprise on the album. Sure. It is. So Breathe is the uh, E major, E minor to an A7 and uh, over the verse. And any color you like is predominantly a D minor 7 to a G. So the same interval just moved down a whole step. And then that chord pattern that transitions out of any color you like is the B part of the breathe of breathe, you know, basically mm-hmm. like uh, they, again, they moved it down a whole step. So instead of a C major seven, B minor seven, F major seven, G D seven sharp nine, D seven flat nine. It is a B major B flat major seven, a minor E flat major seven, F C seven sharp nine, C seven flat nine. And so that's like, it's basically the whole thing just moved down a whole step. Uh, and so, I didn't pick up on that until I had to learn the song because this song is actually part of a triplet of songs that they were originally doing live on the road that they were referring to as Dark Side of the Moon, which was Any Color You Like, Into Brain Damage, Into Eclipse. Oh, wow. That was okay. Dark Side. That was originally going to be called like a, a movement like called a Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. Right. I, I also found that any color you like is apparently about the fallacy of choice. Um, Roger Waters had said that like when he was young, he'd see guys pull up in their like vans to sell home goods to people. And they'd be like, we got everything. We got, we got pots, we got pans, get them in any color you like. They're all blue. And he said that that is like, um, (laughs) he's like, any color you like is interesting in that sense because it denotes offering a choice where there is none. It's also interesting that in the phrase, any color you like, they're all, they're all blue. I don't know why, but my mind is always like, they're all blue, which if you think about it, relates very much to light and dark, sun and moon, good and evil. Make your choice, but it's always blue. <laughs> um, oh, nice. Damn. Talk about Roger Waters. He's a, he's a, he's a sour dude. <laughs> Just always blue. That, that, I know it's not the exact same concept, but it reminded me of uh, Dr. Nick selling a state of Kansas jello mold <laughs> <laughs> on The Simpsons. Oh, man. So we're going to go into Brain Damage, which is uh, the penultimate song on the album. This is one of those songs that has pretty clearly been about Sid Barrett, you know, basically writing about this old friend that he had that had gone kind of crazy and had suffered some brain damage. But it's it's more than that. There's some wryness in the lyrics here. We talks about the lunatic is on the grass. Apparently he had a very specific piece of grass in mind. It was in um, King's College in Cambridge where there was a big sign that said, keep off the grass. And so he'd be like, you know, like he's always picturing this like crazy person dancing on the grass and everybody looking at that guy like he's crazy, but he's like, the crazy thing is that you're telling people not to walk on the grass. Like, that's the crazy part. Like, the lunatic is on the grass. The lunatic is on the grass. Remembering games and daisy chains and laughs. Every day, the paper 
Another note, is this the first time we hear Roger Waters' voice? I believe this is the first time that he sings on the record, yeah. And here's one thing that I will say. Later later on in his singing career, he develops a more distinct voice. But I think during this, he was not very confident, had to get cajoled into actually singing it. I think he's trying to ape the um, Gilmore and Richard Wright style of voice because it sounds way more in line with that than he sounds later. He hasn't developed his vocal personality. I like that you said that because it feels like it lets me off the hook because even not knowing earlier in my Pink Floyd right. fandom, yeah, not knowing exactly. I felt I struggled with this one more than some of the other classic pairings. You know, you get to a point in your Beatles listening where you can tell the Beatles apart vocally relatively quickly, but this one was always Tom, tougher. Tom, some other, I think, I mean, this is a, like a note I have on my run through. I, I, and I, I, is there unison on this song? Cause like you hear them break off in the two part a lot, but when they're not singing in two part, is there just somebody singing in unison, which again would reinforce this sort of insecurity. I don't huh? think so. I think that it's just Roger Waters on Roger Waters slathered in effect to give it that sort gotcha. of like so reverb effect. You don't think this is right or good? I or don't the second think part. so. You think this is dual? I waters. think it's dual okay. waters. I can't necessarily say that for sure. I will say this: one of the nice things about uh, Dark Side of the Moon is that it is one of the only it is the only album that we've done so far where every single song has its own Wikipedia page, which is a nice a nice <laughs> thing to be able to just like uh. jump in and refer to really quickly. Oh, what are the personnel on this? Right. <laughs> this only has Gilmore listed as singing harmony on the song. So I don't think it was right sneaking okay. in. I think it was I think it was just um Waters and again just slathered in that kind of dreamy reverb. Mm-hmm. The Dark Side of the Moon, or this is going to come up later. The Dark Side of the Moon is like insanity, right? He's kind of stated that that's like what he pictures is like sort of insanity is the Dark Side of the Moon. And I think the lyrics to this song have always particularly struck me just not even the like the lunatic is on the grass the lunatic is in my head all that stuff is cool it's evocative but the lines when they break into the the i guess the chorus you know the whole if the dam breaks open many years too soon and if there is no room upon the hill if your head explodes with dark forebodings too i'll see you on the dark side of the moon it's so i don't know i've always this concept of like the dam explodes and there's no room on the hill i can't get to high ground it's always really you know, spoken to me. I've, I know I, I relate to that, Tom. I thought it was a very, very relatable form of lunacy, if you will. And particularly the line, if the band you're in starts playing different tunes, has always mm-hmm. struck me as a very creepy, nightmarish, like subtly Twilight Zone sure. type scenario. Because I always read that as you show up and you're genuinely confused and they are too. Well, that was, that was a reference to Sid Barrett, who... Very famously, there were two things that it's actually a reference to. Um, one is that 
towards the end of his time with Pink Floyd, when they were playing live, he would just be playing a completely different song than the rest of the band. And he was so wow. out of it that he was just playing something different from them. Oh, my and God. And kind of also like, why are you guys not playing what I'm playing? But then also there was that experience they had one of the last times that they rehearsed together where he was bringing, he brought that song to the table. To the table, I think it's called uh, Do You Get It? Where he would play a song and he'd be like, all right, this is the song. Do you get it? And they'd be like, yeah. And then they'd start playing and he would play something different. And he'd be like, come on, guys, do you get it? And then he'd learn that and then he'd play something different. And they'd be like, Waters has said that it's like both hilariously funny and like really maniacally like a maniacal prank to play but also clearly a sign that he was in mental decline Mm -hmm. but then i also think that there is a level of insecurity there that is denoted in these lyrics because it is the band that sid barrett was in is now literally playing different tunes they have moved on and left him behind and i think i think waters was somewhat fearful of that as well again not as confident as he became later as a songwriter i think he was a little fearful of basically being left behind and watching the the band move on without him well and and the strong that's a really great point Tom. i hadn't thought about that but that reminds me of the fact that i've always heard it's one of these scenarios where the feeling was that the concept for the band was really sid barrett's and take that however you, you want, I've sometimes heard that the concept, one of the concepts behind Pink Floyd initially was to create a band where the tempo was purposely down-tempo to be more relaxing and like like to match with your heartbeat when you were in a relaxed state. Yeah, I've heard this for sure. And that was like a, in a way, that, that itself was kind of an innovation that they were trying to go, oh, you know, the music you listen to is, is, is intended, the, the BPM should match your heart rate, dance music should be up tempo because your heart's going faster and let's purposely slow things down. Anyway, but the point is either way, whether it was a real concept or whether it was an imagined concept, strong example of feeling like Sid Barrett had the idea for Pink Floyd and was that kind of torchbearer, so thus it'd be hard to move on from him. Fair enough, yeah. So I, I want to touch on just a couple of more things before we move on to Eclipse. I think that... The way that the harmony comes in over uh, the main line, the Gilmore harmony comes in, they're like, the paper holds, they're folded. And you think it's going to go down with the other line, but he holds that note on the top because, because the main line's like, the paper holds, they're folded, faces to the floor. You think that the harmony line would track with it. It doesn't. It holds, it holds steady on the top, and it gives this little bit of, like, not dissonance, but, like, it's a little, it subverts your expectations a little bit. I think it sounds beautiful. I think it's amazing. And there is actually on the, I guess on the the uh, the paper holds their folded faces to the floor when he actually sings that line, you can hear Gilmore's voice kind of break a little bit. And then when he breaks, he messes up and he starts, and he follows the line down when he shouldn't have followed it down. He doesn't follow it down in other places. It's just an interesting little, like, uh, you know, it sounds good, but you can kind of tell that his voice breaks a little bit. And then he kind of, then he goes, reverts back to following the line, whereas he was holding a little bit of a higher drone note before. The paper holds the folded faces to the floor. And every day. The paper boy brings more And if the dam breaks open many years to see Very, I was trying to 
again, th- that's something that I picked up when I was trying to learn to sing the harmony part when we played this song. And then when those female backups come in over the chorus with the organ, because the organ holds off until the chorus, it sounds, I mean, they sound like an effect on the organ. I don't, it's, it's amazing. amazing. It's like they are. It's angelic. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. amazing. Otherworldly, absolutely. I can't get over how much this song affects me. Every time I hear it, I get chills. And listen, I've listened to this song probably 15 to 20 times a year for the last 20 years of my life on average. And I listened to it maybe 15 to 20 times this week, and I was still not sick of it. Not at all. I still wasn't like, oh, God, yeah. I got to listen to this shit again. So like, well, and these last, this last sort of like suite here at the end, especially if you've listened to the whole record, like this last six, seven minutes is intense. Yeah. Right? It really, it like, it, it Even gets the laughs you in there, they're like the ha 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 ha. It's like intense. everything, there's just so much attention yeah, to detail sure. that, that puts you in that spot. Totally. Such a mood setter, definitely, that laughter. And that's actually a good transition because that laughter kind of comes up on the transition into Eclipse. And this is also something that, like, I did not realize, stupidly so, but maybe we'll talk about why I didn't realize it. But I did not realize that the song switches to six at the beginning of Eclipse. There's that one, two, three, four, and then it's in six after that. And I've been listening to this song for so long that I don't even think about the time signature of it because it's just been this thing that like seamless it's seamless it's a seamless transition into six it is seamless. and it's simple wow. chords it's just yeah you know a descend going on it's like you know the c d with d with a c in the bass b flat major seven a seven sus four to an a seven with super simple chords but it is it's just a little walk down you know well, this is going to be a commentary on an instrument that none of us play officially, but the only reason I knew it was in six, Tom, was because when we learned it, and the drummer's just trying to fake play along to it, and you have to stop and go, actually, yeah. it's in six. <laughs> That's the, the like, okay, I can tell you didn't actually learn this song, so here's what you, yeah. you can't fake it. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's talk about, again, just the insane attention to detail, right? So yes, it's in, Brain Damage is in 4-4, four, four, Eclipse is in 6-8. But the downbeat of brain damage, like the quarter note of brain damage, one, two, three, four, is the one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. It's the one and the four of the six, eight. So like the metro, if you were playing in the studio to a metronome, you would have used the same metronome for brain damage that you would have used for Eclipse. Okay. If you were counting quarter Uh, notes. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it sounds great. It sounds fantastic. They do something here too that I think we, I, I personally joked about with the Green Day album, which is they were looking for that big musical style finish where everyone comes out on stage and they're all pumping their fists and singing the same thing, right? There's a power to cutting the tempo down for the end. Mm-hmm. You would think like, oh, well, let's end and let's make it big, so let's speed it up. No, you bring it down. 
And it's much more powerful when you slow it down. Again, maybe it's closer to the human heart rate, but it feels like you're, you know, it's about to end and it's building and you're excited for it to end. It's just, it's a wild, it's a wild ride. And yet, but you're, it's counterintuitive to slow it down. And similarly, you know what else slows it down is the repetition of yep. the cadence in the and the, and the chords too. Yeah. So <laughs> you know they they build tension yeah. that and way. Right. Yeah. I, I will say the you talk about tension, build, and release. The holding off of the harmony and the holding off of the organ until they hit that all you create and the organ comes roaring in on that line and the the vote the Gilmore harmony comes roaring I know that's probably the right harmony comes roaring in on that line there but they also have the female backups on basically like a straight descend from the beginning of the song they're just getting louder and louder and louder slowly the entire time so that by the end it's like all of the voices are like equal volume they're all rivaling each other and they're all just cranking and going through those lyrics, they're fantastic. They're super evocative. It essentially encapsulates everything in life. This is one of those things where, you know, Rob, you talked about the sort of like the resolution and the finding peace with it. I think it actually, interestingly, in a reading of the lyrics, especially with this concept of, you know, it, on the wall, there's the worms. Worms are insanity, and there's the worms are this kind of like repeating mm-hmm. theme and character. Dark Side of the Moon is kind of insanity on this one, and it kind of repeats a whole lot. When they get to the end, he says, everything under the sun is in tune, but the sun is eclipsed by the moon, which I was like, oh, damn. He's like, yeah, and everything's beautiful and everything's great, but there's always craziness out there. And it can always come in and it can eclipse right. it can eclipse everything else. And that'll be the thing that defines everything after that. I was like, oh, damn, that's some really dark shit. Can you be happy yeah. at all, Roger Waters? <laughs> Do you, are you anhedonic? Do you have no ability to feel joy? Like, <laughs> I I love I've always loved how uh I've always loved one how the organ comes ripping in like at the top of the song um and how this song is sort of dominated by by the Hammond organ in a way that the other songs are not and I've always thought that that is specifically to sort of invoke a church vibe right a sort of like a religious experience yeah right right a mass yeah like a mass experience right and I've also always deeply loved how these lyrics either continuing to show you like the dark and light, like it's not over yet. There's no like big bow. He's talking about how like, yeah, life, that's all you distrust. Yeah. We're wrapping it up here. Let's talk about distrust. Let's talk about begging and borrowing and destroying. It's like, there's no, yeah. there are positive things. I'm highlighting the negatives only right now, but he's wrapping it up and he's still like, yeah. It's a mixed bag, <laughs> you know, and there's an honesty see, in that. <laughs> see, okay, and I, but I, I really read it as much more zen than that. Yeah, sure, I read it sure. as, at this point, you're removed from positive negative. You are the summation of all the actions you take, good or bad. And I, I, I've always, I just always have seen it as a more like Buddhist res, uh, 
removed from that uh, whole whole positive negative cycle like it is what it is well i think one of the things that denotes great art is that it can evoke various feelings and interpretations and readings of it that it has depth and layers and sometimes that is because it is non-specific and i think i think this is i'd say probably non-specific in the lyrics but also very evocative like it is it is like as far as endings of an album i mean it doesn't get any better than this with the one exception that just irks me every damn time. <laughs> the old man says, there is no dark side in the moon, really. Matter of fact, it's all dark. Why doesn't he say of the moon? He doesn't say there's no dark side in the moon? That doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> it's not just an accent thing? I never no. noticed that. He says, there is no dark side in the moon, really. It very clearly says in and not Well, of. weren't all those voiceovers from... Roger, like, didn't Roger Waters give out like flashcards asking random people for yeah. their just general yeah. thoughts on some of this shit? So maybe it was just a guy, kind of. I'm sure it was just a guy, but I, like they chose to use that, no, it was, which yeah. I I found to be anyway. It just it just bumps me a little bit. It's like you were so close to sticking the perfect landing, so close to the perfect landing. You know what? I can't You're enjoy right. it. Can't That's it. it. It's ruined. <laughs> Throwing this album. No, out. I mean this Throw album. It. This album is objectively Put it in the sun perfect. flat. It's this album's fucking perfect. <laughs> so I, I, I also read. Speaking of that interview technique, yeah, that they. I think they cycled through a bunch of things. They were asking people questions, but you don't hear the questions. You just hear their answers and things about flights and death and drunkenness and stuff and insanity but i did hear that mccartney was at the studio doing like a wings album and they put him they tried to record him but he mugged too much for the camera so they had to oh, like for the recorder dick. so they had to kind of cut him because <laughs> it wasn't like authentic answers yeah well you know i kind of love everything and you know, <laughs> you know everything's great no it's not what we're looking for paul apparently the cards that they used at the end of money the question was, when was the last time you were violent and were you justified or like, were you in the were right? Were you in the right? Yes. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool because apparently like everybody was like, oh my God, I was violent last night. It's like smacked my wife up. And like, you know, but totally. She's <laughs> getting real mouthy. Shit. You know, like what is what's going yeah. on? Yeah. Everybody right. just had a story of like, oh, super recently I was yeah, totally violent and also very justified. Yeah. I murdered a stray dog last night. Yeah. What? My God, Bob. You know, I never thought, Tom, what is your take on uh, on the line in Eclipse and Breathe and being connected through the all you touch and all you see line? You got anything there? I mean, it's probably just, uh, you know, it's like uh, it's like a ring story, you know. It's, uh, as, as George Lucas said, you know, it kind of harmonizes with itself at, uh, you know, the beginning and the end. They sort of wrap around, which is one thing I do want to talk about here. And this is something that they used later. I think a little bit more directly on the wall, but beginning and ending with the heartbeat makes you feel like if it just starts, it just plays and you're right back at the head, you know, that sort of circle, which Rob, I remember you describing that first experience of having the wall on, I think it was back in the iPod days where you just had the album on repeat and how at the very end of it, that sort of outside the wall, that song, it, it, Basically, they cut it off at a weird point, and but they start the song, they start the album on that exact point where they had just cut it off, and then in the flesh kicks in. So they use that sort of looping mechanism a lot. They have a great history of looking into the future and choosing, understanding what technology will be. I mean, how else would they have known that Dark Side back to back would line up with Lizard of Oz once it was on <laughs> CD? <Yeah. laughs> right. <laughs> 
That's a good point. <laughs> Great point. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so that's that's listen, <laughs> I I've had borderline religious ex- experiences listening to this album and particularly this song. I have cried my fucking eyes out listening to this song unabashedly. It is amazing. This is one of those, you know, these two songs together, they can't really hang on their own, but they're so inextricably linked together that the two of these as a couplet is one of the more powerful musical experiences I think you can have, especially at the end of this album. Agreed. It is, I mean, I think it's safe to say it's my favorite part of the album. Of a, Every part of the album is pretty damn great, but this is this truly does peak it out. And it's uh, and yes, I consider them the same. Yeah. All part of one song. Well, that's um, that's quite a long edition of why you should think twice before you put Wait, this so on. do you guys think this belongs on list or not? <laughs> let's let's kick it around. I room. mean, <laughs> this is my favorite album of all time. I think this is the best album of all time. If you had to ask me what's the best album of all time, it's this album. I like listening to other albums at times in my life more than this one, but this is the best album of all time, in my opinion. Well, it's one of those, like... it. This is a great album. Yeah, totally. Well, it becomes sort of... I don't want to say cliche, but it, it's a bit of a cliche to say that this is one of the best albums of all time, and that's not a criticism because I agree wholeheartedly, but it's it's that good that it's 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 held in that regard for, for a reason. But look at all the other best-selling albums of all time. And, you know, most of them suck. Like, Thriller's good. Don't get me wrong. This but, is like, not Bad as good as Hell. Bad Hell. <laughs> Eagles Greatest <laughs> Hits. <laughs> Saturday Night Fever. Hotel California. Hold on. I think mo- the difference is most of the songs are on there because they have some good material on them. I mean, sure. Thriller has The Girl is Mine, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a piece of shit. Yeah. Even Abbey Road has Polythene Pam or whatever. Like they, they, there's some clunkers on some of these these great records. And I'm not saying it takes away from their greatness. I think Adam's head just popped off when you said something <laughs> negative about Abbey Road. <laughs> God damn you! For Abbey Road. Well, what do you think the low point no, of Abbey Road that's, is? That's Jesus. a valid Maxwell Silverhammer. <laughs> a valid critique. What? Sure, Unlike the yeah, White Album, which I actually just listened to a little bit of today, Honey Pie is trash. Yeah, Honey Pie is not wild. No, wait, no, you mean Wild Honey Pie? Wild, wild. Not yeah, yeah, Honey yeah, Pie is dope as yeah. hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How yeah, dare yeah. you? Yeah, I'm talking about the one where they just wail for like 30 seconds. <laughs> and That's the one. <laughs> I love you. Every, it's just objectively true that everything must have a high and a low point, even if it's a subjective decision. So. I'm not saying it takes away from the greatness of these other things, but this feels like one of the most consistent pieces of art that has been packaged together as an album. Yeah. And so I would, I'll have to uh, add my praise to the pile of what Tom said, which is, I think it's the best. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to argue with that by any stretch. Great. So we can erase this conversation and never mention it again. <laughs> I listen. I listened to this no joke 30 times this last week. I, I listened to this on repeat for five days straight and it never got old. I mean, I'm sure maybe the 40th listen, I'll probably want to go do a palate cleanse of, uh, I don't know, meatloaf or something. But I, I think, Tom, you said something at the beginning that, that I've been churning through, which is, do I let my kids stumble on this organically? Or do I make it that thing that it's just a staple of their lives from a young age? Or do I let let it be something special that let them experience what I did yeah. at 
you know, formative, you know, musical yeah. age of, you yeah. know, between 12 and 17. You don't read so, anyway. Where the Red Fern Grows to your kindergartner. You got to wait until they're like third or fourth grade where they can really grok the depth of the story. Just like, you know, you don't introduce them to this too young. <laughs> No, they're where the red fern grows fans out there. Come on. <laughs> I mean, what you guys are talking about is a phrase that we've gotten through this entire podcast without saying, and that is sonic alchemy. This is pure <laughs> sonic alchemy. <laughs> End it there, Rob. Call for outros. <laughs> Just to be clear, that is originally, we've been throwing around that term for a long time, but that is from a Pink Floyd, like, infomercial. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I believe. Yes, yes, it was like a, it was I like think a, it might have been no for way. Pulse, right? Oh, my No, it was like, God. it may have I didn't come know like, that it was like a greatest hits, like, yeah, maybe Pulse Bundle. Yes, it was Get the Color Pink Floyd Collection. It was a, yeah. Yes. Now that's yeah, what there, I there call like, Floyd. Like, <laughs> volume nine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's like, like like through pig have a cigar in the background during the commercial. And now we've been saying it for thirty years. Okay. I I think we're gonna wrap it up. This is almost certainly our longest podcast. So I hope you're. You know what? I don't even have any hope left for you. <laughs> if you made it this far, you're goddamn rock stars. Yeah, if I you made say. it through the uh, have a you know, chord, chord changes and the sus fours and all that shit, then congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, even Alan got up and walked away from the camera at one point during that. <laughs> Do we have metrics or analytics for, for like when people bail on the podcast? When people stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, Phil's gonna go to the piano right after this. He's gonna play those chords. He's like, Did you go? Probably. Okay. Text text me for voices. Okay. All that remains now is this. So what? What should? You know what? I think the celebration should continue. I think next week, instead of picking another album, screw this whole album concept podcast. I like just just chatting about what we already like. No, what what we've done for. For next week, a little little special episode, a little treat, is we have taken this opportunity of the first 50 episodes of 1001 Album Complaints, and we have each individually, in secret, compiled the best 50 individual songs from all those episodes and the 25 worst. Because if you're like us, you you need a hate listen as well. (laughs) So what we're going to do is we're going to use those as voting ballots. We're going to tabulate that up. We're going to pull some fun statistics and we're going to do a little walk down podcast memory lane, talk some more shit, and heap some more praise, and publish those aggregate playlists for you. So I think, it'll be a, I think it'll be a grand old time. I like it. Great. So thanks for listening. This has been 1001 Album Complaints. We have a Gmail address, 1001 Album Complaints at Gmail. Shoot us over an email if you like this, if you hated it, if you want you need marijuana to appreciate what we're doing here let us know <laughs> and tune in or if you're like week. adam and you listen to this 20 times in the last week without marijuana we'd still love to hear from you if that's possible <laughs> yeah yeah but do give right. it a try it's once it, you know right. it might change your life <laughs> you know what you make a great point i really think that would be i think that's a must do at some point in your life yeah I'm just throwing that out to anyone. If you've never ever smoked pot in your life, find some really, really weak pot. You don't want the super strong stuff. Find some weak Good stuff. Good call. Yo, <laughs> smoke where, it. Where the Listen you to Dark have Side to of the Moon. Weak pot nowadays, though, it's not worth it. <laughs> 
I mean, you could just come to a state that is progressive and uh, understands that, uh, you know, it grows on the earth, man. So, like, how can you regulate something that grows in the earth? I can go and tell them exactly what experience. I can go and tell them that, like, I want to smoke this and listen to Dark Side of the Moon and be sober by the time it's over. And they'll be like, here's exactly what you need, sir. <laughs> They're going to be I like, you're going to sit cards. in a chair yeah. laying on your back on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Call this Eclipse Kush. Okay. We're going to end it here. For 1001 Album Complaints, I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I've been Phil. I'm Alan. And I'm Adam. Boosh. Boosh.